Hashtags, a Gartner Marketing and Communications podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Dorian Kundik. Welcome to Hashtags, the Gartner Marketing and Communications podcast, where I sit down with some of our best thinkers to share practical tips and strategic insights to help you stay ahead of the curve and add value to your organization. Our topic for discussion today, you don't know Gen Z. Social media-based trends are such a fast-changing space that it hardly seems worth the effort to keep on top of what the kids are doing. But as Gen Z enters adulthood, it's key for marketers and communicators to understand that what appeals to them online reveals much about their attitudes and priorities overall. My guest for today is Emily Weiss, who is one of Gartner's Consumer Insights Specialists. Emily, I'd love for you to take a moment to say hello and introduce yourself. Hi, thanks for having me, Dorian. I'm excited to be here and talk about Gen Z today, um, which is kind of one of my areas of expertise. I'm a Consumer Insights Specialist and do a lot of uh, research and studying around cultural shifts, cultural trends, all of the behavior and motivations that sort of shape what's happening with consumers today, um, and specifically looking at some of the values um, that different generations have that uh, that are are different from other cohorts. So those are um, kind of the things that underpin uh, many of the trends that we explore and some of the things that I'll be talking about today. All right. Great to have you. A very timely topic, and I think kind of a fun topic for our listeners today. Uh, Emily, this is the episode that I hope helps the world finally break away from referring to anyone under 50 as a millennial. (laughs) Uh, Let's start off by getting a better handle on who we're even talking about when we say Gen Z, and you know what beyond age is distinctive about them. Yeah, so Gen Z, um, we refer to as the cohort of consumers who were born between 1996 and 2010. So that would currently make um, them the ages between 12 and 26, which is a pretty big spread. But, you know, sort of keeping in mind that as we all grow up, that gap won't seem so great. I mean, looking at a 12-year-old and thinking about how are they contributing to sort of cultural trends, which they are, no no shade to 12-year-olds. <laughs> um, and then also thinking about how 26-year-olds operate in sort of this the space of commerce and culture and the world are obviously two, you know, really um, extreme ends of the spectrum. Uh, but that is the group that we're talking about. They're they're not necessarily just teenagers. I mean, a big chunk of them are, um, but 30% of Gen Z is currently married or partnered. Um, 19% of them are parents with kids under 18 in wow. their own home. Yeah. Um, 24% of them have already graduated college. 27% of them are full-time employed. So they're not... There are, you know, there's a big chunk that are students for sure, um, but many of them have entered the workforce, again, have children of their own, um, a highly, highly diverse generation. I think that's definitely a headline that most people tend to know about them. Um, and 
what we will talk about today is that they're also a very online generation, but I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about um, their attitude toward kind of their social media use and what they allow access to um, just in general. And also I think what maybe marketers think about how they operate online. Yeah. And we'll get into some of those misconceptions later on. And uh, I'll tell you, I'm still surprised when I think about millennials having children, but that train left a long time ago. Uh, You get questions from clients about Gen Z all the time. And you called out a couple of chronic misperceptions by marketers and communicators that I thought were so interesting. First, that Gen Z is kind of perceived as a monolith, right? Uh, Largely because they're still too young for us to be able to get as much data on them as we can on other generations, right? uh, right? To your point, the oldest ones can barely rent a car, even though they're apparently having kids. The youngest ones are still in what, sixth grade? Yeah. Uh, So tell me about that challenge of getting to know them as an upcoming generation. Well, I think um, as a researcher, the challenge, of course, is just legally having access to the opinions of somebody who is not of legal age yet. So in our um, most of the tools that we have access to, um, we're able to get the opinions and some data around uh, consumers who are 15 plus, but not any younger than that. So um, much of what we understand about anybody who's younger than that is being kind of filtered through their parents' lens, mm-hmm. which is still valuable information. It's still really interesting, but we don't know that much about the behaviors and, and maybe opinions of anybody who's under that age. Um So that's kind of one challenge. I also think that for for marketers and for the general public, understanding the difference between, well, I think that everybody thinks of different generations as kind of a monolith, the same way that millennials were thought of as a monolith, even though they're one of the biggest generational groups um, that we have currently. Uh, And I think even the way that we think about Gen X with a little bit more mystery around them, but also as kind of a monolith that, you know, really still has a lot of like 90s associations that remain very stuck to it when really those consumers that are fall you know, into that generational cohort are also evolving and approaching their sort of age life stage in a very different way than the generation that came before them, which are the baby boomers which we also think of as kind of a monolith. So every generational group has had that issue. And I think, again, marketers trying to reach any generational group, what they really want is to be able to attach, you know, just certain monikers, certain what did they like, certain where are they's, um, because of course that makes their job a lot easier. So I understand why. Uh, But I think a really, yeah, I think a big challenge, as you mentioned, is that there's still this pervasive idea that millennials are quote unquote, the young ones that we need to be paying attention to when really the oldest millennials are 44. And I think we all know that, you know, youth culture really drives what becomes important in marketing because you need to be thinking forward and you need to be thinking about your, your future consumer. You know, and I want to build on that a little bit because you'd identified this second misconception you're hearing from clients, assuming that Gen Z is just building on what millennials started, for instance, living their entire lives on social media for all to see, but that's just not the case, right? Tell me what you're seeing there. 
Yeah, I think um, what is more accurate would be to say that Gen Z has wisely learned from the mistakes of their millennial forebearers. Mm. Um, so where millennials came of age, where social media was kind of a new um, and it was a space where only young people really were gathering. Whereas think about what Instagram, Facebook, some of some other, to some extent, other platforms um, who else is on them now? Your parents, for some of Gen Z, their grandparents are on all of these platforms. That means that they know that everybody is seeing what they're doing and they're getting better and better at <laughs> curating who sees what, hiding certain things. Mm. Um, certainly, they know better that one's digital footprint is never erased and I think all of the mistakes that particularly millennials made in allowing too much access and being too public in order to gain the likes and the notoriety maybe affected, say, somebody's job prospects or their just, you know, social reputation um, in one way or another. Think about how many instances you've ever heard of somebody not famous and then getting even kind of famous and somebody else going back into their tweets from 20 whatever, 10 or before, and finding out that they said some pretty unsavory stuff about certain groups of people. And that's how you get doxxed and canceled. Yep. So I think Gen Z has grown up with a little bit of a better, sharper understanding of... Um, of what, of what can happen if you are not very careful or if you just don't kind of use those platforms to your best benefit. Yeah. So let's start getting into some of the savvy ways they're doing that. And I want to back this up just a bit. In your research, you identified five big cultural and aesthetic trends that really popped out, which can help us get to know Gen Z a little bit better. And the first one that you're alluding to may be the most crucial for marketers and communicators to grasp, which is that Gen Z, to your point, is getting really good at essentially gaming algorithms. In your research, you use the term algorithm training. Tell me about algorithm training and the ways that Gen Z is doing that. So training the algorithm is essentially trying to wrest some control back from what the algorithm is causing you to see um, online. And that that may not always be accurate to what you as a user of that social media platform are really interested in. The algorithm is very good at serving up content and advertising, but we'll just say sort of content broadly, uh, that sucks you in and makes you stay on that platform longer and longer. But while maybe, again, marketers or people who are behind those social uh, platforms believe that the reason people are staying there for so long is because they're getting such a personalized experience. And really it's because that algorithm is just very good at feeding types of content that people are going to click on and see, but aren't necessarily reflective of somebody's own interests or personality. And so Gen Z is doing a, a kind of a wide range of behaviors in order to kind of regain control and teach the algorithm, hmm. this is what I actually want. This is the kind of content I want to be boosted. And this is the kind of content that I want to be um, 
suppressed, basically. So that would include things like intentionally spending time watching or rewatching videos on certain topics or by certain content creators. Uh, that would include turning on certain safety features in order to restrict content, changing or deleting your personal information in account settings within a platform. Um, just even simply as much as like tapping that not interested button or icon on certain posts that, you know, you're not interested in. So it's, it's working within, within the platforms, um, to make that algorithm work better for that individual. And, you know, I want to interject with a really important distinction you made to me. We're referring to Gen Z as hanging out on various social platforms which is in fact a very generous accounting for their actual online presence. Gen Z is basically online on TikTok and kind of maybe still Instagram because they have to be, but they've really narrowed it, right, in terms of where they're hanging out. Yeah, I would say so. And, you know, part of part of it is, uh, as I mentioned, thinking about who is on what other platforms and who's seeing what you're doing. So if it appeals to you to be sort of hidden, maybe more from the people that are in your real life, you're going to flock to a platform where those people have not really figured out how it all works yet. Um, also, just in the sort of realm of this research, we were talking a lot about um, these sort of internet born trends that mostly live within short form video content. Uh, and of course, the platforms that favor that kind of content and proliferate that content are largely Instagram and TikTok. Let's look at the next Gen Z cultural trend. Uh, I know I've started seeing evidence of this absolutely taking over my social feeds, like in the last couple of weeks. It's very, very current. But I, I didn't know precisely what it was until I spoke with you. AI artistry tools yeah. are where it's at right now, at least in this moment that we're recording. That could change at any moment, right? What is AI artistry and why is it taking the world by storm right now? Yeah, so even, even since is like the unfortunate thing about doing research into very of-the-moment trends, because by the time that you maybe release some of that research or start talking about it, something else has already, you know, moved and taken over as being the more popular um, version of whatever that is. So uh, in this trend, we are talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning as it applies to... Uh, generated art. Um, so these are text to image tools that trawl online neural networks and kind of are able to grab from images when people input text and tags related to those images and to that type of artistry in order to generate artwork that is fully made by via machine learning. Um, and it's really become, I'm sure the thing that, that, uh, you've seen a lot of, I think in the last just two weeks, Lenza yeah. is, um, is one of the tools that really just exploded and allowed people to, um, look at images of themselves. This is why I was saying to you, I don't, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell why something breaks through. It's like, okay, well, if all of these, neural networks do the same basic thing, why do some of them get so popular and other ones we never ever hear about? And my theory, although untested, is just that Lenza um, takes self-images 
So people get to see themselves as they might look in a Renaissance painting or as an anime character or whatever. But the real common thing is that all the Lenza images make you look like the hottest version of yourself. <laughs> so I think that's why uh, I, I feel like that's why Lenza really broke through because everybody then was sharing like, look, isn't this crazy? This is what I would look like if I was, you know, in a Vermeer painting. It's like, well, you look gorgeous. You look incredible. So of course people want to share that. <laughs> then someone clicks on that, you know, and very quickly finds out what is the app that generated this? And then they go try it for themselves. So that's my theory about Lenza. It's still so new that I don't want to, you know, that's just a personal opinion, which I guess I'm allowed to share uh, within this medium. But when we did our, our more formal research into this, we looked more specifically at Midjourney and then Dolly, which are both uh, also similar tools. And the interesting thing, I think, about all of this is the ethical conversation that has sort of sprung up around the use of AI to do something that really is so human and does it you know, many questions sort of come out of this. Does it devalue the work of real artists? Is it the same thing, you know, after the whole Lenza uh, explosion, I saw a lot of people talking about how Lenza and um, AI generated art like this is essentially the same as fast fashion and how fast fashion steals designs from, um, from other designers and from other artists and kind of rips it off and turns it into, you know, a cheap and disposable version of that original designer's artwork and, um, and sort of making an argument that things like Midjourney, Lenza, Dali are doing the same thing. It's devaluing the, the very human work of the original artist um, and other people who think, but this is just cool and fun and is a way there is sort of, um, a side of this where people believe it's a real art form to put in the proper inputs in order to get a really incredible piece of generated art out of that. And that basically learning the tool, much like the algorithm hacking and algorithm conditioning and training we talked about before, uh, is its own form of understanding what the machine is doing. Um, and that that takes a human input in order to do it. So, it's just sort of part of the sharing and visual language and and interest and experimentation, I think, that's that's going on um, with AI and social media right now. If you could briefly share, you had just given me such a great example of what you called a brand flex from oh, yeah. Heinz. Uh, do you mind sharing that example? I thought it was such a great illustration of how brands can kind of seize the moment to great impact. Yeah, I think Heinz did this really brilliantly. They worked with a creative agency called Rethink. Um, and this was kind of early on when I believe it, they did this through mid journey. So that was when I say early on, I mean, that could have been like six months ago, but I think it was about a year ago, um, where this phenomenon was very new. And that meant that the machine learning, the AI that's behind these, uh, neural networks was also kind of in its infancy. So as those networks have expanded, obviously that, artwork can get more specific and it looks a lot more refined now. Um, but when Heinz set out to kind of do this campaign, uh, it was a little bit more 
it was just like a little bit rougher around the edges. And still what they were able to produce, uh, they basically put the input into um, this AI art generator tool um, that said, draw ketchup and asked that neural network to collect as much information as it could to produce images that drew ketchup. And basically a hundred percent of what was returned were images that looked like the Heinz bottle, the shape of the Heinz bottle and the shape and the text and the, you know, look of the Heinz logo and label. Um, And so just to be that synonymous with your brand, with your product um, is like such a huge brand flex to say that, all of the neural networks even know that Heinz goes with ketchup yeah. know, to this degree. And then I think the really smart follow-up part that they did to this campaign was to also show the human side of um, of draw ketchup and that a, a person, an artist's brain, the original neural network, uh, would also produce the same thing. So they asked a bunch of real human artists not knowing that Heinz was behind any of this, um, gave them the prompt also draw ketchup. And again, essentially 100% of them did some sort of version of the Heinz glass bottle, you know, uh, the the little tomato on the front. And even if they didn't name Heinz, it was very clear that just the iconography of that brand has infiltrated um, how we think of ketchup <laughs> to such a great degree. So I thought that was pretty genius. Yeah. There's not that many brands that would be able to apply it in such a perfect way. Uh, but you know, not only did they sort of make a comment on the conversation that people are already having about the human side and the machine side of of generating images like this, um, but they also, yeah, were just able to pull off that ultimate brand flex of when you think of ketchup, you think Heinz. I love that. And pulling off a major brand flex is a great thing to have on the resume. So, <laughs> For sure. <laughs> okay. Here's one of the aesthetic trends. You call it aesthetic association. In your words, Gen Z is prone to flock to trends as an avenue for their self-expression. Tell me what you found here. Yeah, there are so many. Um, this is, again, one of those very fast-moving spaces um, where a look in fashion, a look of somebody's whole kind of account content can be shaped and kind of predicated around an online born aesthetic, like here are some that you might've heard of or not heard of coastal grandmother. This is (laughs) kind of inspired by, you know, uh, Nancy Myers movie, you're barefoot and wearing khakis and a cozy turtleneck and you're you have a beach house in Maine and you're will like wealthy and you're Diane Keaton. That's kind of the coastal grandmother look. It's appropriating kind of parts of that feel and that culture um, into a whole aesthetic that maybe takes over the look of the content that you either create on your social media or the way that you dress or art that you produce um, it can kind of take a lot of forms. Um, so that's one. Barbie core is maybe another one that you've heard tossed around, I think, as uh, that movie, the new Barbie movie with Margot Robbie and um, Ryan Gosling is being shot. It seems like there's been a big explosion in 
hot pink and kind of outfits that look like Barbie would wear them, but put onto a real person. Um, that one's kind of fast, also evolving, trickling down to mean many different things. Um, the Y2K look sort of reviving, uh, you know, that terrible, what I, th- I'm sorry, what I think of as the terrible fashion from the early 2000s. It uh, was which is regrettable. Now being yes. Kind of appropriated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> appropriated by younger teens as, you know, looking fresh to them in sort of a nostalgic way, nostalgic for a time that they didn't ever experience. <laughs> um, so those are all sort of examples. In our research, we really looked more specifically at the cottage core trend um, as it continues to be a very popular search term um, and a very popular aesthetic. Cottage core, as you can kind of tell from its name, is all about being um, in nature, being cozy. Uh, it is a very fall heavy, fall related aesthetic. Um, it involves prairie dresses uh, and sort of making things by hand, doing things slowly, um, you know, reading without an e reader, writing things out with your actual pen instead of, you know, on your iPad. It's, it's trying to take a break from modern life by really fetishizing uh, everything that's sort of pastoral and rural. Um, And we know that even though it was a a trend that sort of came out of the pandemic, it continues to be uh, from, like we know from data and examples from Airbnb, that they've said that still remains one of the most popular tags and search terms for all of their properties, um, both for what people search for and how people list their properties. Um, So people are still really being drawn to like an immersive experience where they would be able to live that cottage core lifestyle away from, you know, their own regular life. Uh, And then the other one that we looked at kind of more closely is dark academia. Uh, This is my favorite. Um, Dark academia really pulls inspiration from movies like School Ties and I would say even the Harry Potter series, the movie An Education, um, Dead Poets Society, really anything that takes place in a sort of preppy but gothic setting where... Uh, you know, people are walking around with real books and listening to music on record players. Uh, and again, sort of drawing its inspiration from literary life. But I also think that on a deeper level, part of the reason that this is so popular is because it fetishizes the look and feel of an academic experience that a lot of people in Gen Z have never been able to have and probably won't be able to have. Um, Partly because, as we know, higher education has just gotten so inaccessible and so expensive. And so the idea that you would be able to be kind of running around an ivy-covered campus and eating in a big dining hall, you know, with real lit candles and, and sort of the bounty that it looks like all of these people in these settings have. It doesn't really exist like that anymore for so many reasons. 
Um, and, and part of that also is because of the pandemic, hmm. these uh, Gen Zers that came of age when they were supposed to be kind of, you know, flying the nest and going out into the real world for the first time, the ones who graduated high school and went into higher education after that were largely doing classes online. Mm -hmm. They might've been, you know, on a campus, but it would have been a much more limited experience, very mm -hmm. siloed um, and just not necessarily this like rich, artistic, open, um, you know, highly poetic mm -hmm. kind of feel to all of it. So, I believe that that's a big, deeper part of the draw to all of this. But, you know, maybe more on a surface level, it's also just liking tweedy skirts and, you know, big oversized nubby sweaters um, and like drinking tea in the afternoon. <laughs> so they're both definitely very cozy aesthetics, I would say. Frankly, both of them sound great to me. I would take either one. Uh, <laughs> fourth trend you identified. And this involves, wait for it. A hot new platform. <laughs> Everyone's ears are perking up right now. It's called Be Real. But Emily, brands need to take note here because this is actually a sign that Gen Z is trying to ditch you. Tell me about Be Real. Yeah. So I do think as much as we've talked about Instagram and TikTok and that those are still places where Gen Z and younger millennials and older millennials um, are still spending a lot of their time and energy uh, in our research, we do know that over half of Gen Z, 54% of Gen Z consumers agree or strongly agree that they're trying to actively limit their time on social media. Um, and I think that is a big driver behind the appeal of Be Real. And if you're not familiar with Be Real, it's a very basic um, kind of unfiltered. The whole idea is that it's a very unfiltered platform. Um, and its function is to get you to share just a single image per day. So the time limit part of it, I think is really appealing to people who are trying to not get sucked in by that algorithm and keep clicking on whatever reels, you know, get suggested to them or whatever. That's not possible on Be Real. Um, you get a notification once a day that tells you that it is time to be real. And you get two minutes to capture a photo of whatever you happen to be doing at that moment. And it takes a picture both of your from your forward-facing camera and your outward-facing camera. So when you share your image with your followers, who are just the people that you really are close to and who you've selected and chosen, there's no way to be just sort of like... Um, a public account on Be Real, at least not yet. Again, these are fast moving spaces. So by the time this podcast comes out, you know, that could change. Um, but for now, the idea is that you are very much sharing just a real moment in time with your real friends in your real close circle. People, of course, are already kind of figuring out ways to um, screen capture and repost onto other platforms if they want to share their be real there's definitely like memification around the look of be real captures um that i think people are are sharing that way uh too and i think that watch this space very much because features from be real are going to be adopted and tested on other social media platforms so that people who maybe don't want to learn a new platform or set up a new account or whatever 
can still get some of the experience of Be Real, but within a platform like Instagram. It seems important for brands to know that there are online places where people love to hang out primarily because brands aren't there. Uh, Tell me about some of the implications specifically for marketers and communicators as they try to latch on to the next new hot thing. Uh, One thing you said that I really liked is that it's important to not alienate them in their safe spaces. Yeah. And I I think, you know, advertising within the walls of Be Real is not currently possible, but there are other ways for brands to participate on Be Real. We have seen just a couple. um, I know there's a beauty brand called ELF, or I guess some people just say ELF. It stands for eyes, lips, and face. Uh, And they have set up their own Be Real account to sort of take the way that consumers use Be Real. They're not trying to act like a brand or be an advertiser within the environment, but act more the way that a consumer would be using Be Real. And they're specifically using this channel to drop the most kind of behind the scenes, behind the scenes um, of their product development, of something that they might be testing, of new packaging before it goes out, because they are also getting the uh, notification that it's time for them to be real. So whoever runs that you know, particular account has to just take a picture of what they're doing. And sometimes that might be boring and sometimes it might reveal um, something that their fans and followers are really interested in knowing. And it gives you a true, a true behind the scenes and a really um, authentic moment that has nothing to do with promotion, and yet it works on a level of promotion because it's authentic. So it's a pretty hard place to execute right now, I would say. Um, And it's not a place where everyone should be. As you mentioned, part of the appeal of spending time in this app is you are away from being bombarded by um, posts that get you to want to buy things. And for people who are really trying to do a little bit less of that, be Real offers a space and a place where they're less tempted. And um, and I think it, it brands, brands really have to tread lightly if they are thinking about getting involved. Okay, our final trend from the data, another cultural trend. It's all about raising the vibe and manifesting. Tell me about that. Yeah, um, this one we kind of put under the umbrella of directing destiny and Uh, The idea is that Gen Zers have kind of found a spiritual practice in directing their own positive thoughts and intentions um, and their belief, the ones who participate in this, and, and the hope of it is sort of that those positive thoughts about themselves, about others, about the state of the world will actually materialize in the physical world. Um, and I think that part of what underpins all of this and where we kind of saw the peaks of these hashtags that are related to manifesting and the practices involved in it, um, on social media were also some of the times where people were the most locked down during the pandemic. So it makes sense that as sort of a coping mechanism, Um, that manifesting, which is not a brand new idea. It certainly has roots in spiritual practices that go back for centuries, 
the new thing about it and the new thing that Gen Z, I think, is kind of discovering about it is the online community that surrounds it. Um, but it really makes sense as a, a coping mechanism in a time where people were very isolated and also very uncertain that thinking about the one thing you have control over is your own thoughts and um, also needing to stay in a positive mental space uh, that this sort of practice of manifesting and doing it with other people um, through, you know, various prompts online and through video sharing and your own journaling and all of that kind of stuff would be really appealing. Uh, we have 62% of Gen Z who reported familiarity with the concepts involved in manifesting compared to about 35% of all non-G uh, Gen Z, excuse me, consumers. Um, there's, you know, just a, a massive amount of content related to manifestation on TikTok and on Instagram in particular. Um, one uh, kind of viral method, you know, and this, it, it can look like a lot of different things. It can be done in service of really higher order goals, like, I don't know, settling um, peace between <laughs> countries, settling peace between family relationships. Um, and then kind of on another end of the spectrum, we see a lot of manifesting content that's being directed towards like shipping a couple in, you know, their favorite TV show that they really want to get together. And they're going to like put all their positive energy towards those two finally hooking up or a new Taylor Swift album dropping. There's a lot of Swifties actually who believe that they, you know, helped to manifest the drop of the Midnight's album because it had been in their minds a long time since, um, you know, Taylor had released new material. And it worked clearly. She's very prolific. <laughs> so yeah, we see a lot of manifesting done in kind of entertainment space and fan service. And then, also kind of moving all the way through to how can I become a better person through talking myself there? How can I get the goals and um, get to places in life that I've always seen for myself through sort of speaking it into existence? So going over trends this way, I think is just really compelling and, you know, great fodder for that holiday get together. But just at a very practical level, Emily, how does this kind of insight into just how Gen Z is wired, right? It doesn't even have to be as specific as how they interact with brands online, just what they care about and what they hope for and how they think about things. How does this kind of insight help marketers and communicators kind of carry their brand forward as we launch into 2023? So I think it's important to think about the values that underpin some of these little trends, because as we mentioned many times in our discussion, these are fast moving spaces and we wouldn't necessarily recommend that every brand, every marketer, every social media manager needs to jump on everyone um, or even always use the language of some of those trends in order to, you know, seem relatable because there's a very, a uh, high incidence of sort of being perceived as cringy if you do mm -hmm. that or if you get it wrong. It's a it's a careful um, balance that one has to strike to sort of employ 
you know, some of these things in your own strategic um, outlook. But I think the values that underpin a lot of these things are the really interesting place to look. And that is really what gives you insight into this generation. Uh, In our uh, research tools, we have sort of a tracking, a way to track the values that um, different generations tend to espouse and adhere to and that they put more weight behind. Uh, And we have a whole very sophisticated ranking system um, that we've been tracking for consumers of different generations over the last decade. Uh, And I think that Gen Z really has a couple of differentiated values that marketers need to know about that are highly, highly differentiated for them compared to all other consumers. Creativity is one of them. This is 31 points uh, rank positions higher than it is for any other consumer group. So that's, we consider more than 10 points to be significant. 31 points difference is highly, highly differentiated. Yeah. Um, The way, the sort of phrase that we use to measure that is, I always want to be creative and use my imagination. You can see in many of these trends how Creativity is such an important driver of sort of exploration, the trying on of many different, you know, aesthetics and identities, the use of AI to see if I put in a bunch of, you know, phrases and tags and words that I think relate to myself and my identity, what's going to come back at me? What gets produced? How am I reflected um, by how I sort of see myself and, um, and what creative tools can I use to like draw inspiration from? So creativity, huge driver discovery, um, which I think is, as I mentioned, kind of related to that, that's 18 points, uh, rank positions higher for Gen Z. I like to pursue and discover new sites, tastes, sounds, experiences, and ideas. So that's a very highly ranked, um, value for this generation individuality is 21 points higher. I enjoy and emphasize the qualities that make me unique. I think I kind of talked about all three of those things grouped together as being drivers behind some of that aesthetic, um, of the aesthetic trends. I think for sure of the AI art, uh, purpose, which is a 29 points higher ranked for Gen Z, I think definitely underpins that manifesting idea. I am driven to reach the goals or dreams that I feel are most important in my life. Um, Control is ranked eight positions higher for Gen Z uh, than it is for all other consumers. I seek to have control in any situation and in my life. Um, I think that underpins a little bit of the, you know, Algorithm training, um, for sure, trying to wrest some of that control back from all of the um, machines and uh, formulas and platforms that dictate the things that they see and do online every day. Uh, And also the, the Be Real app, I think that control and sort of having control over what is seen and also controlling the amount that you're exposed to. I think that underpins um, some of the appeal of that app. So those are those are just, I think, a few of the key um, values that are really 
that are really uh, differentiated for this group and that are highly ranked and very important to understand why it is that they're drawn to do some of these things online, even more than it is important to understand what these online cultures really are. Yeah. What are some things that Gartner clients specifically can look forward to in terms of further support and understanding Gen Z? So we have a lot of generational research. We always produce a a consumer outlook that discusses um, the values for every generation that looks at U.S. consumer values overall. It tracks the values that are rising. It tracks the values that are falling over time. Um, it tracks what are top values for each generational group. And then um, as we kind of looked at today, the things that are differentiated between each group. So there's a lot of different ways that we can slice and present and understand this values data. This topic that I discussed today will be uh, a published piece as well. So you can look more closely at uh, some of the data that was involved in uncovering these trends um, and get some examples kind of of how brands can execute and have executed um, on some of these trends. And we also have our uh, consumers and culture top trends for 2023, which is a slate of research that we publish every year to look at cultural shifts and um, understand them through the lens of consumer experience, to think about some of the things that have happened in the news and the uh, reactions, both in behavior and attitudes that uh, consumers have had. Um, around those things and to kind of use all of those um, as a new way to understand consumer culture. Emily Weiss, thank you so much for bringing your expertise to our podcast today. And thanks to all of you for joining Hashtags. We hope that all of you take a little time to go try out some AI artistry tools and make yourselves look extra hot. And (laughs) we'll see you all on a future episode. Take care. Please subscribe and share the episode with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. Gartner Podcasts are a production of Gartner, the world's leading research and advisory company, equipping executives across the enterprise with indispensable insight, advice, and tools to achieve their mission-critical priorities. You can learn more at Gartner.com. All content in Gartner Podcasts is owned by Gartner and cannot be repurposed or reproduced without Gartner's consent. Gartner is an impartial, independent analyst of business and technology. This content should not be construed as a Gartner endorsement of any enterprise's product or services. All content provided by other speakers is expressly the views of those speakers and their organizations. 